Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where myself, Nick Hill, and my good friend, real estate expert, Daniel Foch, sit around for about 45 minutes and talk about real estate every Tuesday and Friday. So thank you so much for joining us today. Dan, what are we talking about today? We got a few things to talk about today. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about pretty much everything. (laughs) And a lot of these, well, a couple of these charts are in the newsletter that we just sent out. So make sure you go and subscribe to that if you want the visual companion to today's episode. And you want a visual companion to a lot of the, the research that we're doing. Um, but basically, this is um, a monthly report, a report that I put out uh, as my my role, my job as director of economic research at Rare Real Estate, um, and it basically just summarizes most of the macro trends and then a bunch of micro trends in Canadian real estate, and um, and then it touches on the, what's happening in the Toronto real estate market, which you know we've mentioned a couple times on the show. We we like to look at to get an understanding, it seems to be a pretty reliable leading indicator on what's happening in the remainder of the market. And yeah. and so we're going to talk about the macro, about a handful of different things that you know we've probably done individual episodes on, but we're really going to try and wrap it, bundle it all together and contextualize it for you um, to give you guidance on what all of these economic factors mean for you as a real estate investor right now in Canada. So without further ado... Is there is there further ado? Is there any anything? No. Any other things we need to do further? (laughs) I do think actually it's worth noting that we did our meetups last night. Yeah, and and they were awesome. Uh, Smaller events, which is actually you know we're we're totally fine with that. Um, And most of the hosts were pretty happy. Intimate settings, a lot of good conversations. Yeah, I think they were only smaller because it was the the turkey coma. Yeah, right. It was Tuesday after the long weekend. Yeah, for sure. but I mean, I can tell you firsthand experience. If you're not coming out to these events and you're listening to the show, you're, you're missing out. Honestly, the feedback every time has been fantastic. We, I was surprised actually last night. There was only a few familiar faces. So shout out for the people coming back and shout out to the people that decided to come out for the, for the first time. Um, I had several great conversations. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think there's probably, I'm going to get probably at least one or two deals or an introduction that'll at least at lead to a deal. Um, really great stuff. I highly recommend everyone come out. We're actually going to do another episode, uh, in the next few weeks, fully about networking and, and really how to get the most out of these events because, uh, they've been fantastic for us. Yeah. And with, um, and with an exciting announcement on that episode as well. Um, it, it is worth noting too that, we don't make money off of these events. Like we, we yes, actually, they very, cost us money just so you're aware, yeah. but we've, we've decided to use our platform to help other local real estate professionals build um, these networks. Um, and a lot of people have been really grateful that we're doing it and that we're doing it on a regular basis. And this is where deals get done. Like historically before COVID, everything I was doing, all of the deals I was getting were from environments like this. So we wanted to be able to create that and share it with our audience um, eventually we will probably try and use it to, to aggregate into something bigger. Um, but right now it's a community building exercise for us and, and it costs us money. We don't make money off of it. So yeah, this is our goodwill thing. It's a thank you for supporting us on the show and, and however we can 
connect the real estate community in Canada. We're happy to do it. So anyway, now that we have done the further ado, without further ado, um, let's get to the slide number one here on the report. Yeah. So um, guess what, Dan? Inflation is doing what it does best, which is uh, inflating. Uh, so after falling for the last 12 months, Canadian inflation is back on the rise, jumping up the last few months. We saw a jump in both July and August. And the increase in inflation creates a headwind for Canadian real estate as we enter into a potentially stagflationary environment and can see further rate hikes from the Bank of Canada. You will be listening to this episode will be released uh, this Friday, October 13th, Friday the 13th. Uh, and we are expecting a rate announcement on Thursday the 12th. So uh, you will be listening to this and you'll know the outcome of tomorrow's announcement, but uh, we'll see what happens. Um, let's talk about this uh, this chart here, Dan. Yeah, well, I mean, it basically just shows in June we saw inflation bottom. And I, I'm, I actually think if you go back, there's probably a soundbite on this show where we say inflation could have just bottomed. Um, at when it was 2.6, 2.8, depending on whether you're using core or, um, trim CPI. And it was funny to watch the politicians do their victory lap and whatever. And both, they did it in both the U S and Canada. So not being partisan or whatever, but funny um, or, or cringe a little bit as well. I mean, it, it did indicate to me that they do lack the necessary understanding of how the economy works, which is important for me, an important characteristic in, in, in a politician. But, um, and I think that it's becoming a more important characteristic in a politician for many Canadians. And I imagine that that will, will be reflected. Well, it's being reflected in polling numbers right now. Like the, the bar is literally just have some understanding, communicate some understanding, right? Mm-hmm. And polling numbers aside and Canada aside, I think that people are just realizing that this is an important time to, to know a lot about the economy. And um, the growth that we're seeing in inflation since that that victory lap from – and it was funny because we didn't even use the U.S. example. The, the Biden administration did the same thing, tweeted it out. Um, a lot of that is – they're kind of getting a foot and mouth for for crossing the line that isn't supposed to be crossed between monetary and fiscal policy are supposed to be very separate, right? Um, the government isn't supposed to interact or advise or congratulate central banks or take credit for central banks' work. And uh, anyway, the big piece here, the big takeaway from my perspective is that growth from 28 to 4% was entirely predictable as a result of base effect, oil prices, and BMO, as well as a cup. actually Statistics Canada almost even said it themselves, um, base effect would get inflation up. And then BMO came out and said they literally nailed it, that oil alone would get inflation to 4%. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we hit that, uh, that two to 3% that, uh, that that's the target. We, we, it was a pit stop there for, for June. And, uh, we, we quickly left that. Now again, you're right, Dan, we're back up at four and potentially going up even further, which is a great segue to the next, uh, slide here. We've got, uh, we've got rates. What are, what are they doing? Yeah. Rates are rising. I guess rates are rising. Inflation's rising. It seems like the only thing that's not rising right now is house prices in Canada, but, um, and I guess the, the temperature is, is going down as yeah, well. Yeah. That's true too. <laughs> The five-year bond yield has been climbing for the past month. Um, it, we're now approaching levels that we haven't seen since the global financial crisis. Fixed rates are likely going to continue moving up as a result of this bond market activity. The the market, the, in quotes, you know, the uh, the 
the all-knowing market seems to be pricing in a higher for longer interest rate environment in Canada and the U.S. Um, and in regards to the rate hiking thing, I mean, I, I don't even know if I have a prediction on this, but I think that we're kind of at the point where we can't deviate too much from, from the Fed. Otherwise, we're at risk of importing inflation. And so I think we're kind of just in follow the leader mode. Um, and, and I would imagine that's sort of why they paused first. Um because they didn't, they wanted to get back to the point where we're fo- we're following the lead of the Fed. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, you know, we've talked about this so many times. I, I don't think the damage has been done by the uh, rates that have been imposed on the economy yet. So, you know, whatever happens tomorrow, whether we see no raise twenty five or or fifty bips, uh, you know, it, it's it's essentially arbitrary at this point until the rates that have already been placed take effect and we're just starting to see that right now and you know i think uh i think we're still white knuckling right now uh but there may be a lot more pain to be felt in the in the coming months q4 q1 q2 of of uh and and potentially all of next year yeah, the announcement's the twenty fifth, by the way, not not uh, tomorrow the twelfth, and the, and they're releasing a monetary policy report on that day, which is exciting because we get to do an episode on it. Oh, my mistake! Wow, look at that. You're just the twenty fifth. Super excited. Uh, the twenty fifth. That's my birthday, so I was I was confusing whether it's my birthday or the yeah. monetary policy <laughs> or the Bank it. of Canada. I get those confused now. You know, it's all hopefully such a you gift. get a rate hike for your birthday. Actually, hopefully not. Anyway. <laughs> Let's keep going here. Uh, Two years, the last two years. Wow, what a ride those have been. House prices are increasing on a monthly basis as they almost always do from August into September. Uh, After falling for the last three months, this was obviously a very welcome change for all of our friends out there in the real estate industry. Prices remain basically unchanged that last two years I was talking about, prices remain unchanged since August of 2021, meaning that the past two years of price gains and now losses have kind of been erased. So basically, it's a wash if you look at the last two years. So Dan, let's look at the um, average sales price here uh, over the last two years. Yeah, from my perspective, and you know, this is Toronto data, but this would be true for a lot of markets in Canada, save for the ones that are still ripping, which is mostly, I think, just Calgary right now. Um, you know, for the most part, we're kind of in that, and we said that this would happen in episode number two, prices come down. Like when you think about a crash, like a real estate crash, which like undisputably a 20% year over year drop in house prices that happened last year would be called a crash by any other standards. Um, you know, I, I don't think that a crash per se is uh, going to happen hereafter. I think it already did. Um, you hit, let's, let's actually use the word. A plane comes flying because we are like we love airplanes on the show. Plane yes. comes fly, falls out of the sky. What does it do? It bounces in, along the ground because it's got still got a ton of velocity, right? It's, you see that those huge divots in the ground, right? Like what, like Nick's golfing, <laughs> and uh, but that's what I don't it like does, how right? we're getting more comfortable yeah. with with chirping my golf game on on the it's show. It's funny because I'm like... a horrible golfer. I'm all, all, all but all but given up on golf actually, but. Uh, <laughs> That's what happens, right? It falls. You see the big crash, and then you see that kind of like that bounce, and then the yeah. um, and then the uh, sliding along the ground, and, and that's kind of where we're at. Like we're at this little bouncing, and then the flat, the long flat, and then you got to rebuild the whole plane before you can get it back up in the sky, right? So usually they leave them there, but we're not going to do that with Canadian real estate. <laughs> 
So just just uh, as a little anecdote there, I had some some people ask uh, ask me last night at the event, you know, why we're doing all of this, and um, that's that I, you know to to go off this example, that's kind of what it was. It was like, look, things are things are breaking. They're going to need people to rebuild them. Uh, Dan and I want to be part of bringing the people together across the country to rebuild things, whether that's by adding units into smaller homes or by becoming, you know, the citizen developers or, you know, amping that, amping your, your portfolio up and, and trying to get those five and six plexes and using things like MLI select. And, um, you know, I think, I think that that's a, I think that there's a really great opportunity for, for certain people to get involved at a certain time, that time being now, uh, to try to, you know, rebuild that plane that Dan was just talking about. For sure. I also think it's a necessary piece of the puzzle because the current system isn't working. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, like, why do you examining the worst case scenario? I'm like, cause the, the status quo is failing us miserably. Like we have, and, and our- also, do you need to really prepare for the best case scenario? It's the best. It's right. probably going to be zero planning. Exactly. Yeah. Let's keep going here. Yeah, sure. So this is this one comes from RBC. It says more sellers and fewer buyers take pressure off of housing prices in Canada. Toronto has seen the biggest increase in new listings among major Canadian markets per RBC Economics, and uh, it was also the only market to see a decrease in monthly home resales in September 2023 compared to September of 2022, um, which is crazy because September of last year was a bad like that was in the middle of that crash that we were just talking yeah. about. So they, they put a, a handful of different markets here side by side. I'll just read them. So you have Vancouver, um, home sales are up 13.2%, but new listings are up far more. So supply is outpacing demand in, in Vancouver. New listings by are double, up 28.4%. Yeah. yeah. Fraser Valley, um, sales up 22%, listings up 25%. So, you know, pretty standard market there. They're both growing pretty substantially. Calgary sales are up 28% and listings are up less at 21.6%. And this is where you end up with that supply scarce market that's mm-hmm. still ripping. Edmonton, this one's crazy. Just this crazy. Is, it looks like it looks like there's a mistake on this yeah. graph. <laughs> Home sales are up 25.8% in Calgary and, and then where's, new, where's listings, new listings. New listings are basically unchanged. So at 0. It's, they're technically negative, but you can't even mm-hmm. see it on the chart. Toronto, uh again, the only one we saw a drop year over year in home sales down 7% and new new listings are up 44%. Like that's wow. a recipe for disaster in the micro. Yeah. And this is microeconomics now we're talking about here. This is what's happening in individual city levels. The supply and demand of real estate in Toronto just got pretty ugly from my perspective. Not a good setup. Um, Montreal supply uh, down 1.9% and Home sales are up 8.9%. So again, a little bit of a excess demand scenario in Montreal right there. Um, yeah. There's really, really only one, yeah, there's only one thing that really stands out as scary on this chart. And it's the fact that how big Toronto's bar is and how, how, yeah. how, much, how disparate that supply and demand situation is. And it just flipped like overnight. Yeah, it's crazy to see the disparity even between a, a Vancouver market, which obviously from a, from a size comparison is is nowhere near there, but usually from a price or even kind of activity from a you know a leading indicator, um, we can look at Vancouver as well. But Toronto here really skewing the data as per usual. Um, and let's keep talking about that scarcity. So uh, so long to supply scarcity. We are seeing an unprecedented jump in supply. 
And that's giving us the largest September supply since uh, the pent-up pandemic flood uh, back in 2020, back in that fall market a few years ago. Remember that when when buying the house was you absolutely had to do it or you complete idiot? Remember those days? Um, so house prices have uh, been supported for a while with inventory at record lows. And since house prices begin falling in Q1 of 2022, new listings and active listings were both at record lows. This supply scarcity kept that market in excess demand, which turned that into the seller's market. Dan and we talked about this numerous times on the show in real time, witnessing it. Um, if we continue to see that growth in active listings and new listings, prices could continue falling and put us back into a buyer's market hopefully, or at least a very a balanced market for maybe a little bit before we tread onto that buyer's territory. What do you, what do you think about that? Toronto's already in a buyer's market, so. Yeah, I mean, look at that graph. That yeah. doesn't get more buyer's market than that. Well, and we're like on a sales to new list. So there's two ways you can measure this. We've talked about it on the show, I think, a little bit, but um, months of inventory is number one. So when you get over a certain amount of months of inventory, um, it would be considered a buyer's market. So when there's enough supply, then it's a buyer's market. And then um, the other one is sales to new listings ratio. So if you are starting to see less and less sales per new listings, the ratio of those two things together would be a buyer's market. By both standards, we are in a buyer's market in in, mm-hmm. in Toronto. Um, but but the reality is, and I think this is in, in the part where the contrast is is important, is looking at what's happening in other markets. Like if you look at Calgary, um, that's still in a state of excess uh, demand, that's a seller's market. And a lot of these, a lot of other cities across Canada are not going to feel what Toronto is going to feel because they aren't as, they aren't as credit dependent, number one, but they aren't as, uh, there's not as big of a dislocation between supply and demand happening. And so this micro, the the, I mean, even the guys who tell me, oh, macro doesn't matter, only supply and demand matters. That's what this is. Also, supply and demand is a principle of economics, macroeconomics. So it's the same thing. But anyway. I think there I was digress. only one guy that ever argued with that uh, fact with you. And, and yeah, we don't need to go into that. <laughs> it was funny. Let's go to, it was funny. Let's go. Uh, let's talk about that. We've got a great quote here. Um from a, I was I was going to call him a friend of the show, but he's not. I was I was going. He's not an enemy of the show either. He's but a, can be he, featured on our Christmas sweaters. That's what he, he is. Ha, he has been mentioned on the show numerous times. Um, I quote: "The best predictor of whether somebody is going to pay their mortgage is whether they have a job," and that is from Tiff Macklem, the uh, guy running things at the good old Bank of Canada. Uh, and this is in here because the labor demand continues to decline in Canada. Um, and this is from uh, RBC here. Job vacancies have fallen back to 2021 levels, a reflection that the oversubscribed and over-optimistic labor market may be a thing of the past. So as mentioned by Tiff Macklin, the governor of the Bank of Canada, labor is an important factor in their decision-making process, especially around housing market activity. Um, so let's look at these, uh, these charts we've got here, Dan. Yeah. So the first one is the one that you were kind of mentioning in the, in the writing there that, um, labor demand in Canada is slowing from elevated levels, which is showed uh, by the job vacancy rate. And this is from RBC economics report and statistics Canada. And then the next one, which is a friend of the show or sponsor of the show, um, indeed, 
post this and Brendan Bernard is an economist that indeed um, I'm a big fan of his work. He posted on, um, on Twitter a lot and uh, he posted this chart showing the Canadian job postings index. And it basically shows the same conclusions as the RBC chart, but indeed is much more relatable data point for people. Cause it's like, you think indeed you think job postings, you think, yeah. okay, if job postings are going down, that means Canadian employers are not trying to hire as much. And remember, housing, orders, profits, employment, which one are we getting to now, right? And Mm -hmm. so this is where you're kind of like, oh, we're actually in a cycle and we're later in this cycle than I anticipated. It's actually like remarkable to me now that we're watching this play out in real time, like our first like real recession, you know, not when we were kids. It's my first time. It's my first one. How slow things go. Yeah. And I I don't know if it's just because... I never experienced it before. Or if things happened so fast during COVID, like, you know, it was like market crash, market was back up to all time highs. Like, you know, like everyone was broke. Then the, there's governments raining money down, like out, out of the sky. And, you know, everything just happened very quickly then. So maybe just yeah. also. It's, it's been very interesting. Again, I think we've made this joke that like, you know, there's uh, <laughs> people are, are adjusting their ages for COVID, right? So take your age, chop three years off of it, and that's your COVID adjusted age, right? And, and it's funny because before, before COVID, I don't think many people were paying attention to this, right? Real estate was real estate. The bank of Canada was the bank of Canada. No one cared. No one was putting Tiff Macklin on sweaters or anything like that. And then you're right. Throughout COVID, everything moved very, very slow in some ways, but very, very fast in others. And, now, you know, we are starting to see again that that weird slow fast effect. So um and and that kind of brings us to our next point here of of and I guess this is kind of like consumer sentiment and you know, are people motivated? Are they unmotivated? Tell me about that, Dan. Yeah, so I charted uh and this was actually from the series of charts that I um presented at the Veritas conference. Uh, for those of you who listened to the episode that we did with Anthony Shilapati. And um, it was basically, I was looking for signs of distress on the supply side in Canadian real estate. And, and so I searched for motivated sellers, like basically the, their agent put the words motivated in their listing. Um, and you can see it, they're ramping up. So we're seeing a ramping up of motivated sellers, basically um, how many, one, two, three, four, five, six months in a row. We've seen it growing in the number, but we're still not hitting the highs of April, May, and June of last year or April, May, June, and July of last year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of the fascinates me. And that, that period of time, there was a lot of urgency, right? Because people were having appraisal shortfalls. They were getting caught between transactions. Like that, when we're talking about things happening fast, that happened fast. Prices like the market just went no bid, like over, overnight. And so that people getting caught there. Um, created an instant sense of urgency and motivation, but then it kind of subsided really quickly too. And you see it by the end of the year, it was basically back to normal levels. Yeah. So you get ramp up now in this slower way is a little bit more, not alarming because it's not happening fast, but it's a scary trend to see unfold. For sure. And I mean, that is some blatant signs of stress, right? We're, uh, you know, not only just motivated sellers, uh, but we're continuing to see substantial increase in power of sale listings, right? And that's kind of creating a bit of an alarming trend as we, you know, head on into this recession that that we're 
you know, in, or if you don't think we're already in it, we're, we're almost there. Or for some people that think we've been there for a while, right? Yeah, we should, I feel like we should do a whole episode on power of sales and foreclosures again. Cause we were, we did it really early on in the show. Like when this, the chart didn't mm-hmm. look like the one that I'm staring at right now, which this chart <laughs> is in the newsletter, by the way. So I mean, power of sales are up like three to 400%. And, um, this one is, it fascinates me as a data point because, um, what happens is, so we always hear, oh, mortgage delinquencies are so low in Canada. Um, and mortgage delinquencies are measured by mortgages that are 90 plus days in arrears. Banks, like the big six banks, then report their mortgages in arrears at that time. Um, if I'm a prudent lender and somebody is 30 days in arrears or one day in arrears, I'm taking a property power of sale. And so, and then within 30 or 60 days, it's on the market on the MLS. And at 60 days, it showed up on my chart and it still hasn't showed up on CMHC's charts or um, Canadian Banking Association's charts. And what happens is after 90 days in arrears, the bank reports it, Canadian Banking Association or Bankers Association reports that another month later. So now you're four days old, four years, sorry, it's late. I'm tired. Four, <laughs> four, four months have passed by when this person stopped paying their mortgage before they actually become a data point. And so I thought, okay, well, let's see if we can find some infill data points. And, you know, I mean, I would say I don't, I try not to assume anything, but if you were to assume that delinquency is following the same trend that this chart is, that's not cool. That's pretty scary. Yeah. And then CMHC actually reports it the next quarter. So th- six months by the time the fir- that first arrears thing happened, house has already been taken power of sale, sold, probably even closed. And lenders maybe even got their money back from the transaction. And so now maybe it's it doesn't even make point. it on there or maybe it doesn't even make it on there as a data point. You well, know it would because I mean? it, it was in the rears. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, it, it doesn't even matter at that point. I mean, it's yeah. very interesting. This is why we're talking about, again, things moving fast and slow, right? Like that first part can happen really fast, but then it's going to take a while to get that figured out. Yeah. And I think that, the, you know, this is like, this is why it's cool to do a podcast about this stuff because there's a lot of nuance on, we'll just do a whole episode on power sales because I think it's going to be really important stuff. And a lot of people hear power sales and they think foreclosures and they think I'm going to get smoking deals and whatever. And we should talk about why that's probably not likely. So it it does require a whole episode. So I'm just going to leave that there as a teaser and we will get to it. I promise I'll do a great episode on it, but um, we'll keep it going for now. Yeah, but it's, and it is, um, it's just like it's got to be a really long and thorough episode. So we'll see you then, folks. Next episode or ne- next next uh, next chart here is a very similar looking chart. You're seeing a huge ramping up in VTBs, which we talk about a lot. We've done a whole episode on that, and maybe we're gonna have to revisit this one too because sellers are now pulling out all the stops to sell their assets in today's market. So we're seeing a similar trend, um, which is sellers are offering vendor take take back mortgages at a record rate. And this was an important indication of distress, but also creativity in the downturn in the 1990s. And the reason that it happened was out of necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. And um, sellers were saying, okay, well, there's no buyers lining up to buy my house anymore um, because interest rates have gone up so much. And cre- we started seeing credit contraction happening. And this credit contraction was causing um, 
buyers to not be able to borrow money to buy houses. And so lenders said, well, hell, if that's, if that's the only issue that you're having, I'll lend you the money. You can buy my house. And it create, it, it really in today's market and in that market creates a unique opportunity for, you know, the opportunistic buyers who are out there with the sellers who are out there who want to be liquid or who want to be uh, in a position to dispose of an asset uh, creates a win-win situation with, for two, two parties with two completely different market theses. So, um, I think it's cool. I also included this chart in the newsletter. So I hope you can have a look at it and let me know what you think. And for those of you, who, anybody who wants to see a list of properties, not, I can only do the Toronto real estate board, but a list of properties that are offering better take back mortgages or that are uh, for power of sale. I can send you the list of all of the properties that are on this chart. So just let me know. Send me an email to the show notes and I'll send you a list. Just don't expect to get a deal on the ones that are um, for power of sale. And probably don't expect to get a deal for the ones uh, that are offering a vendor take back because nine times out of 10, I'm seeing people are offering a vendor take back, but it's because they want uh, Q1 price. <laughs> and yeah. it's a trade off. They're like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you borrow up to 100% loan to value if you if you give me some crazy price. If you, if you if overpay you for my yeah. By, yeah, exactly. That's no, your interest rate right there. <laughs> It, and you know, again, I think we did a, we did an episode on this way back called vendor take backs or VTBs. How do VTBs make every deal better or something like that? So right. go check that out. But it may be time to do another one on, on this because Dan, as you said, right? Power of sales, VTBs, seller financing. These are buzzwords that weren't really common speak for most people in the real estate industry. Obviously, you'd have your real estate investors that would use creative financing like this, but now, you know, to see them everywhere all over the MLS, it's it's very interesting. Let's talk about some other interesting stuff and we'll go quickly on this because I know we've talked about it already, but uh federal government, you know, removing um the GST, that's fantastic. Uh this improves the economics of of PBRs. Purpose-built rental constructions, right? So that's. I was going to say, did, Pat, did uh, they just hit buck a beer on Pabst Blue Ribbons again? Uh, are we going to? We're always going to use the Pabst Blue Ribbon joke when we say PBR, right? I'm going to crack one next time we yeah, do. That's a good when idea. We do every a time. Episode. <laughs> every time you say PBR, I drink one. Um, so yeah, well, let's let's keep going on. I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because I know we have already. But I, I think this, along with um, some of the other stuff we've seen, is is really a step in the right direction. And a lot of the smaller cap developers that I've been talking to um, are are really excited about this. They're excited about this. They're excited about the CMHC uh, increase in mortgage bonds. You know, we know it's not cutting all the red tape we know permits still take a long time we know there's a ton of other issues but these little steps in the right direction this moving of the needle uh, you know it's something that we will uh, we'll take the little take the little wins when we can get them well obviously policy is doing something because the chart that's featured on this page shows purpose-built rental units under construction and it looks kind of like a ho- hockey stick chart now the challenge by challenge is that it does say purpose-built rental units under construction and it could just mean that it takes them way longer to build these Mm -hmm. units and so or the size of projects is longer if i'm giving people the benefit of the doubt and so um completions might be a better chart but it's still fascinating from my perspective and this is this is a chart from ben rabidou um but it shows basically we're almost at 140,000 purpose-built rental units under construction this is great this is this is policy working this is them starting to remove and hopefully that chart just keeps continuing to grow and we get to the point where we were just talking about purpose-built rental becoming a make work project in a recession which we chatted a lot about got interesting feedback on that because it was kind of a, a way out of left field uh 
episode, right? It was just complete yeah. like us theorizing on something that could happen. Um, what's the next yeah, one? This is what happens well, before we move on. It, it yeah. is interesting here to see that, you know, 1990, there was about 20,000, uh, under units under construction, purpose built units, that is. But then from 95 to about 2003, there was less than 20,000, which, which is not a lot considering, you know, if you even look at 2020, that was, that was, your, that was your recession to, though, right? Th- yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens now that we're back in recessionary territory and we've got well over 120,000 under construction right now. Is that going to mm-hmm. dip? Is that going to be, you know, is, are we going to see that increase with the new legislation that's kind of pushing this type of asset? Uh, interesting times. Well, and you know what? We'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on what happens there. But yes, Dan, let's, uh, let's keep going because we, we love talking about this, uh, this topic. We, we cover this anytime we can because it is both interesting and, and fun. Um, if you like blowing bubbles or popping them. It's funny because so, I, I, I was working on in my head here like this uh, analogy of like, oh, you know, you've got a bottle. Imagine yourself with a bottle of champagne and then you and I was thinking you unbubble it, but you actually uncork it. But it's been a long you time since I've drank. You so, haven't drank champagne in a while. A very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so anyway, the title of this is unbubbled, which means that the bubble is no longer here according to UBS. They still consider us overvalued, uh, Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, Toronto at a 1.21 and Vancouver at a 0.81. So Vancouver, not as bad as Toronto. Um, But actually, the the, um, city in North America that usurped us as the bubbliest, which is very relevant to this city, by the way, but the bubbliest city in North America is Miami, um, which now I have Shocker, Miami by Will Smith playing in my head, but um, <laughs> 1.38 is Miami, and there was only two cities uh, around the world that were st- were in bubble territory, and that that was uh, Zurich and Tokyo, and and the reason um, that there are so few bubble cities in the world now is because house, house prices have come down because credit contraction makes house prices come down. Who would have known? Yeah. If only somebody could have told you that a year ago on a, on a brand new (laughs) podcast. Yeah. I mean, look, I, uh, looks like we're in good company. The, again, as Dan was saying, the bubble index shows that Toronto has a relatively affordable option among these other global cities based on the number of, uh, years of skilled service worker needs to be able to buy a 650 square foot, apartment condo or flat uh near the city center so on a price to income basis toronto is the fourth most affordable city uh you know the the this is this is just crazy hong kong 25 years yeah then what's what's next year we got tokyo is like your 13 to 18 range 18 year range which is like way below like hong kong just stands out it's like so far up on it's, this it's like ridiculous the rest the rest yeah. of them are pretty much all grouped together you got tokyo paris tel aviv london singapore munich sao paulo and then you kind of get to like your the the more standard commonwealth cities and toronto is towards the bottom of this list it's the fourth most affordable so is miami list. my actually is is the bottom of the list which is uh which is again kind of funny because 
they are now almost in bubble territory. Yeah, to be fair, um, the big reason for that is their uh, real price growth rates um, as of second quarter 2023, uh, Dubai and Miami were the fastest growing. Um, and then uh, the next the next um, chart, which is the same version of that um, price to uh, income chart, shows um, price to rent. So the, the number of years a flat of the same size needs to be rented out to pay for the flat. We're British so now, I, by the way. Yes, I, I love it. So, so cultured of us. So if I go and buy my flat um, and uh, I don't want to live in it, and I want to rent it out in Tel Aviv. That is going to take between 38 and 48 years. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And and then you've got basically a handful of other cities in the same category on that price to rent basis. So you've got Hong Kong, Geneva, Zurich, and Munich uh, sort of in the same category. And then you kind of start tapering down Frankfurt just behind Munich. Um, but Sort of in the middle of the pack here, you've got Toronto and Vancouver, both of whom uh, right on top be, of each other yeah, down there, yeah. And they're both kind of in that twenty-five year range, which is like a five cap, I guess, or a, a four cap, hypothetically, mm-hmm. if you're just rough math. But like, a hundred percent divided by twenty-five is four, right? Um, so twenty to twenty-five, so your four to five cap range, um, which is pretty accurate. Like that's kind of those markets right now. So and then so cities that are uh, maybe better invest. I guess you'd call this investment prospects. Um, would be like Boston, Madrid, New York, L.A., Sao Paulo, San Francisco, um, Warsaw, Dubai, and Miami. Um, coincidentally, all have better weather than us. <laughs> uh, let's chat about affordability here quickly. So Canada has the fourth worst detachment from pre-COVID affordability. That is after you, the United States, Germany, and New Zealand to return to those levels. Now, before we move on here, just want to tease a cool episode we've got coming up. So uh, we've got a gentleman from New Zealand. I believe they are referred to as Kiwis. Oh, I'm excited for this. Uh, yeah, this will be a really good one. He is an expert on both uh, the Canadian housing market as well as the New Zealand housing market, which are actually quite similar markets. Uh, they've experienced similar things over the past several years as well. But there was a few major differences that they did, and New Zealand housing is right back on track, and Canada did not do those things. That is all I'm going to say. He is going to be joining us on the show in the next few weeks to go through a exhaustive report that he wrote, which has been covered quite extensively. He's a really impressive guy. He's a developer, uh, and he's got a much better voice than we do because he's got a cool accent. So let's uh, let's keep that there. Um, more about the New Zealand uh, versus Canadian housing economies in the next few weeks. But uh, so to get back to it, house prices would need to drop another 33% or incomes would need to rise another 55% or mortgage rates would need to go down 350 bips. Now, Dan, we've been through this before. We've actually tied this exact sentence in one of the other podcasts. And I think you and I both agreed that the likelihood of prices dropping another 33%, not really going to happen. I mean, it could, but unlikely. The likelihood of 
incomes rising 55%, I would say is almost a 0% chance. Uh, and mortgage rates falling 350, you know, again, possible, but unlikely. So I think it's going to be a little bit of movement across all of those, right? You know, you might see house prices drop another 10 to 15. You could see incomes go up a couple points um, and mortgages will, you know, eventually hopefully fall. Yeah. And uh, the next chart below this actually is really, it's it's excellent because it shows us all of those things working in tandem to, to create improvements in housing affordability. So this is, I should have included this in the Patter um, newsletter and I will, I'll, rec- I'll include it in the next one. So this comes from um, National Bank Economics and Strategy and it basically shows the Q2 change in housing affordability in 10 metropolitan areas. So it has Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, Gatineau, Victoria, um, Vancouver, Canadian Average, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal, and Quebec. Um, sorry, East Coast, you guys just got left out here. And Saskatchewan. This Which is it, not us. This those is my are important Canada, markets. Okay. Like, those are the ones I really yeah. want to start seeing what's happening there. Um, so Toronto seeing the biggest improvement in housing affordability, and you can see what percentage of these bars is, um, comes from each piece, right? So house prices did the majority of the work in Toronto. Interest rates did very little of the work and that interest rate piece is the same for everywhere, right? Cause there's no better interest rates in different cities. Um, incomes did about half the amount of work that house prices did. So incomes went up a bit, house prices came down a bunch, interest rates, we know what happened with interest rates. Um, the only city that actually saw an increase in, um, or sorry, a worsening of housing affordability was Quebec. And that was mostly because house prices continued to go up. Um, they did the same thing in, in Montreal. Um, and then your Calgary was kind of closer to unchanged, but, um, fascinating anyway from my perspective to see how those components visually on a chart how those components all stack up uh, to Mm -hmm. improve housing affordability um you want to do you want this to be the last one i know we're um yeah actually maybe we can skip uh actually just read the quote here from ben rabideau because he's awesome and and this is a great chart and then the next one i think is important because it's another ben rabideau chart but very important we like we like when rabideau on this episode thanks ben um, Canadians are getting poorer. Setting aside the pandemic, real per capita GDP is now contracting at the fastest rate since the global financial crisis. Well, that was a good period of time. Data includes advanced estimates for August. This is from Ben Rabideau. So, Dan, maybe comment on this chart a little bit before we uh, move yeah, on. Yeah, so it's just a steep line. It's, like, it's a portrait of a nice cliff. Um, a lot of steep. <laughs> yeah, this looks like a mountain range going the wrong way It here. is interesting because the IMF recently came out and said that they expect Canada actually out the GDP growth to actually be higher in Canada than the U.S. But um, the it doesn't matter if you're – population growth is outpacing your GDP growth, then you'll always have um, a declining GDP per capita. And then this chart also, so so GDP per capita is always going to decline unless GDP outgrows population growth, just so you're aware. And that's population growth is like 3%. GDP per capita growth from IMF is like 1.5%, Then you add the real piece adjusted for inflation, and that's where it gets, it goes down even more. Um, So anyway, the last piece, uh, Canadians are paying more interest than ever. One in five mortgages of Canada's big three banks are now negatively amortizing, meaning the mortgage amount is getting bigger. I'm going to ask Ben if we can use this chart in um, in the pattern newsletter because it's a crazy one. 
It literally yeah. is just shows principal and interest payments for the average Canadian mortgage. And it just shows how principal has basically fallen off a cliff and interest has just skyrocketed at the same time. Yeah. And so just to, to speak on this, remember each loan, each mortgage has two components, right? Your principal, which actually goes off, you, you're buying more of the house at that point. You have more ownership and interest is literally just that. You are just paying interest only to the bank. They're just making money off your loan. And that interest rate is is just spiking like crazy. So to see that, you know, one in five mortgages in three of the big six banks are now negatively amortizing. That is not good. That is uh, that is kind of scary. So, Dan, before we leave, because uh, I know we've been over some micro, some macro, touched on on bubbles and hockey sticks. What do we let's let's wrap this up with some 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 good stuff. How do we how do, how does the average investor take this knowledge and utilize it as they're going out to buy their next property? Um, I mean. From my perspective, it's like this is a very difficult market to navigate. Um, you you obviously want to be buying with better rates, um, and I would assume that house prices will likely continue a downward trajectory as a result of rates being high. Um, and I think a lot of people are of the opinion that rates will come down and then prices will skyrocket immediately thereafter. And I think that you know for those for those people who want to try and time the bottom that's fine i know you know mitch probably presented the most compelling mitch is our our um co uh we call it co-instructor for the course by the way brilliant guy but he and he kind of taught gave me the case of why somebody might want to buy on the way up and he's like you know for me it's like even if i'm missing out on five or ten percent uh of gains or i'm paying five or ten percent more um, I've watched that five or 10% of growth and you've got a couple of months or a couple, you know, you know that the bottom is in, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people want to wait till you're back on that up leg and that's fine. It's probably a safer thing, but for the people who do really try, want to try and time the bottom, you kind of have to be buying on that downslope and you have to be the vicious mean guy, you know, lowballing people and being the greedy when others are fearful, and being the blood in the streets shark swimming around, flopping around on the streets, right? When everybody's sw- out there um, swimming naked or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so um, my thought is like we're clearly in a in a bad economy. We're clearly in on a borderline stagflationary economy. Um, there are going to be deals. The market is showing signs of distress. Um, don't effing dance, as it said in the um, in the Big Short. Right. Um, you know, this isn't a time to celebrate, but if, if you, if this, if you're, if you're, have been waiting for an opportunity, if you've been bearish and been waiting for an opportunity, um, to capitalize on, on a market that was in a state of mania and was overly greedy and is now becoming overly fearful, I think that we're approaching peak fear and will likely be on, on a bottom for a while. Um, and understanding that my perspective of a bottom is you crash. And you bounce along the bottom and slide in dirt for a while. And that's kind of where we're getting right now. We're kind of in that bouncing part of that. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the only, I just had a few points. You know, we just, we just were joking about this in, in an episode, uh, a few, a few episodes ago. It's always a good time to buy a good deal. It's always a bad time to buy a bad deal. Uh, so be extra cautious these days. And, you know, again, I'm going to steal this from, from Jonathan Gibson, our, our partner at land bank. Uh, and this is probably one of my favorite quotes is, uh, you got to be patiently impulsive. Now is that opportune time set yourself up for success, right? Whether that's 
educating yourself, whether that's going out and building your power team, whether that's finding, you know, now's a perfect time to start picking a new market. If you're a newer investor or if you're an investor, exactly. Or if you're an investor looking to diversify, go and find that new market, find that new power team, get pre-approved, stack your cash. And when you do find that good deal, have everyone in place ready to go so you can pounce on it because Dan's right. When we do start to see, you know, that, that kind of dragging along the bottom there, you're not going to be the only one that notices. Neither are we. Other people are going to be doing that. And there is a lot of big players sitting on the silence right now, waiting, just waiting for that to happen. We're not sharks. We're like little baby reef sharks that can't even bite you. Um, you know, just trying to buy a couple duplexes and some apartment buildings. There's some institutional level capital out there that is waiting to, uh, you know, to deploy and, and being patiently impulsive. So that's likely who we're going to be competing with on the other end of this is, uh, is larger investors. So, you know, do the best you can right now and prepare for whenever it is you're ready to pounce. Any, uh, any closing remarks, Dan? I have nothing to add to that. Very well said there, Mr. Nick Hill. You're you're almost sounding bullish to me, but... Uh, oh, <laughs> Do I dare? Yeah, Do having, I dare? It's because we're not sitting together for this recording and um, you're, not, yeah. you're not absorbing hey, my bare energy. We just we just bought another fourplex, man. Come on. We, yeah. uh, we're still out there being patiently impulsive. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening. Hope you got a ton of value out of this. If you want a copy of this report, if you want a list that Dan was mentioning about all the VTB deals, the vendor take back deals, reach out to us. We will send you these assets. And if you want to know what a vendor take back is and try to get a better understanding of that, go back and listen to our exhaustive episode on how to use them, how to write them, how to negotiate them. If you got any questions about that, again, reach out uh, emails in the show notes along with a whole bunch of other great stuff, but great resources. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.